Hi, everyone. Welcome to Drinking from the Fire Hose, a podcast for school leaders. I'm your host, Ellen Willoughby. Being a campus leader can feel like you're drinking from a fire hose with all the information, requests, tasks, and duties that are thrown your way on a daily basis. So how do you manage to do it all and help students grow? Well, that's what this podcast is all about. Today, our guest is Katrina Bailey. She is the principal of Caraway Elementary in Round Rock ISD. Hi, Katrina. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Well, we are really excited and we want to go ahead and just start off by having you share your definition of a culturally responsive school and why it is important to create culturally responsive schools. Well, that is a really, really great question and, and so relevant um, in today's world and in our, in our, our global world, global society and, and how we and our approach to schools. And so a, a culturally responsive school is one that uses the cultural knowledge of their community, of their their students' prior experiences, the staff prior experiences, and and the diverse learning styles that students bring to the classroom to make learning more engaging and more effective for students. Great. And tell me a little bit about what that looks like. So in the classroom, I think it's, it's teacher, if I'm a classroom teacher, I would be surveying my students to understand their unique experiences, their backgrounds. I think that's the first thing that we do. Mm-hmm. You know, at the beginning of the school year, you get that class list and you're looking to see who's in your classroom. You're looking at those those um, 20, 22 faces, 25 faces, I think sometimes in cases that are going to be in your classroom. And you're going through and you're, you're doing your background, right? I think that that's important. I think it's important to understand um, who's coming into your classroom so that you can create a space where they feel comfortable. So I think it's, doing your background as a teacher to understand who's going to be in your space so that you know what they're going to bring, the cultural capital that they bring bring to the learning environment and recognizing that as important um, in planning and design, designing learning experiences and making that really that classic community. So I think that that's the first step is just understanding. It's surveying, it's asking students um, how best they learn. Mm -hmm. I think it's asking students what makes them comfortable in a classroom space. and really what they hope to get out of the year so that you can design your learning experiences around that, around building that community and making sure that you are bringing in the students' cultural backgrounds, their experiences to the table. Because I think it's also not making assumptions about what students do and do not know, but it's also recognizing the brilliance that they bring into your classroom every single day as well. I love that. It's, it starts with the kids, it sounds like. Yes, it does. That's great. So I would love to hear a little bit about yourself and your school. So for me, I am, have been the principal at Careway going on seven years now, and it's a really great school. Um, and it's a really unique campus. The campus is 42 years old now. Oh, wow. Um, and it has a really unique context. We're uh, part of Round Rock Independent School District, but we're Austin Travis County where our location is. And so it, it really brings in a really unique context in that we have students from all over the place, really. We really call ourselves, we call ourselves a family, but really an international family because we have over 38 different languages spoken in our, in our school. Um, And our students come from all over that, all over the U S all over the world. We have lots of students that are from India. We have lots of students from Europe, um, Latin America, um, Mexico, um, right here in the U S around the Austin area. So our, our school is really has a really international feel to it. Um, we went through a, a period of time where we grew really quickly too, um, mm-hmm. following most of what's happening in the Austin area where we were adding probably anywhere between 40 to 70 students a year. So we had this really fast growth 
um, from a school of less than 700 to close to 900 um, last year really quickly. And so that um, is a really unique context for us, too, because we had to learn to adapt really quickly to the students and the experiences they were bringing into our school. Um, and it's been fun. It's been really fun and, and enjoyable to see our students adapt and learn from each other and our, our staff adapt in our community. It's, it's such a welcoming community um, in the Austin area and part of Round Rock. I always say that it's unique. It's a little hidden gem mm-hmm. um, hidden back. And it's a really it's a neighborhood school and it's a hidden gem. And it's just it's just a wonderful place to be. That's great. And just just the incredible amount of diversity that your campus has has to be mm-hmm. just such a unique and really amazing experience, not only for the for the students, but also for the staff. Right, right, right. Our staff and even our staff, too, like they're just they're so what the, the unique thing about our staff is that they are truly their desire to know their students is truly authentic. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is the, the piece of being culturally responsive that's important is that we are authentic in our approach um, to wanting to know our students because we know how important that is. And right. I think it's, it's, it's not maybe necessarily unique to our school, but I think that it's, um, it's what makes our school great and that, that our approach to getting to know our students is authentic because it really comes from a place of really wanting to know so that we can be our best for students. That's awesome. So I'm going to um, start out with some data that I found um, that's going to kind of lead us into to our next question. So according to the Heishinger Report, it's a national nonprofit newsroom, and they report on just education. And they, they said that educators who run U.S. schools aren't a diverse group, that almost 80% of the nation's 90,000 principals are white, and only 11% are black and 8% are Latino. And, according, and this is all according to federal data. And so that doesn't come close to reflecting the demographics of the nation's 50 million public school children who are 46% white, 15% black, 28% Latino, and 6% Asian. So what are you, your thoughts on this data, especially related to creating culturally responsive schools? Well, I, absolutely. My mind immediately goes to um, the narrative that we're creating, right? If we think about um, leadership roles and positions in general, um, whether it's race or, or gender or whatever um, context we, we want to look at um, leadership, I think that we create a narrative that it is when we look at those numbers, we're creating a narrative that maybe leadership isn't for certain groups, right? And right. so I think that that's one that we have to recognize that um, that there is a cultural mix- mismatch and we have to disrupt that narrative. Definitely. Um, and students do need to see themselves as leaders. And the best way to do that is to diversify the leadership, not just to, not just the teaching staff, but also those, those that are in leadership positions right. within our school. And so I think that a, a so what, like I said, in my mind immediately goes to is disrupting that narrative that leadership is, is bound to um, a race or a certain gender. And so it's, it's our job as, as, as leaders in the education field to um, advocate. And I think that it goes bigger right. than just the, the school system. I think it goes bigger to, um, I think it reaches across our university program, the preparation program, mm-hmm. um, the recruitment of, of a diverse group into to education, I think is important. So I think it's something that we need to recognize as a problem of practice, I guess I, I should call it a problem of practice, and that we do need to diversify so we can disrupt that narrative. Great. Yeah. And I, and I absolutely agree that it's, we, it, it has to start from 
you know, the recruitment piece of like university um, and getting getting a diverse population into the profession. Absolutely. Before we get back to the show, we wanted to ask for your help in reaching campus and district leaders. If you like what you hear in this episode, hop on over to whatever platform you use and give us a rating and review. It really helps people find our podcast and lets us know what we're doing right and also what we can improve upon. And of course, don't forget to mention us to your colleagues. Thanks. Now let's get back to the show. So as a campus principal, like where do you start? Um, and if, if we're looking at schools that have been in existence for a long time or even, you know, new schools who have kind of just been going along with the status quo and are really wanting to um, examine how they are, are meeting the needs of the various diverse populations of their schools. So what would you recommend? I think um, there are some really basic things we can start to do as as campus principals and leaders in approaching the work. I think one is, is starting with recognition first, right? I think recognizing, and I think we've, we're kind of already there, right? right? We recognize that this is a, a need. And so I think we're there and we understand it. And how do we best approach it? And so for me, I think I look at the different practices that I have on my campus, right? I look at, at who I am hiring um, on my campus so that we can start to diversify, right? And I work with um, all of my stakeholders, my staff. I, um, I think it's important to build the capacity there because the teacher is the most important factor, right? Like right. the teacher is the program, we say that. And so I think it starts with building the capacity in the staff as well um, as a starting point. And I think um, my hiring committee, mm-hmm. um, that when we sit down and we build a profile of what our campus needs, we look at our campus demographic data um, and we look at whose voice um, needs to be brought to the table and how we need to diversify our staff. So I think it starts with the hiring practices. I think it starts with the professional development that we, because we control that as leaders, right? We control what professional development is in front of our teachers. Right. We control the hiring practices. So there are some, some very basic things that we can do. Um, we control the, the type of resources that we purchase in our school and ensuring that if I'm purchasing literature for my library, mm-hmm. that I am vetting that and that I'm vetting that I have diverse literature that my students can choose from. So I think that there are some basic things that can happen at the campus level that Maybe we can't control the larger context individually, but we can control the local context very easily. Um, and there are some steps that we can take. And I think part of that is starting with self. Okay. Too, right? Yeah. While we're growing self in the process, we can, we can, there are some small moves that we can make because we do control a lot of our, our local context right. and how we approach the work. And so thinking about that, um, we know that this work is really highly emotional. Like if you're really digging into this and, and really looking at yourself and kind of where you stand and, and then, you know, wanting to, to grow that, you know, with your teachers and to help them build their own um, knowledge base and understanding of how to serve, um, serve their students in the best way possible. How do you handle pushback or resistance from teachers and staff on the campus? Oh, wow. That is, um, it's a challenge, right? It, it, mm-hmm. it is definitely a challenge. But I think that part of that, too, is recognizing that in order to approach this work, um, we have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Right. Because it is uncom- culturally responsiveness and in, in helping um, others recognize the importance in that work and recognizing that it starts with self. Because a lot, like I said, 
a lot of the work starts with self makes people feel really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I think talking about there are certain topics that are just uncomfortable to talk about and race being one of them. Right. Race, ethnicity, anything that um, is, like I said, said to disrupt that narrative, it, it makes people uncomfortable. So I think that we have to recognize that the work is going to be uncomfortable. And I think we, we speak to that, right? Whenever you start this work, you speak to today, we're going to be focused on XYZ topic. Right. Um, and, and recognizing and inviting that it is going to be uncomfortable for us to talk about this, but really bridging back to the why, mm. right? Why is this important? And we, when we look at the data, the data is it's pretty consistent across multiple contexts, right? Right. Um, whether it be whether it be school or whether it be um, home ownership or whether it be who who has leadership and power and who is in different positions, like it, that that data is. Is consistent, and so I think it's bridging back to the why mm-hmm. and the why of the work. And I think when we start there, one with the why and recognizing that our approach to this work is going to be uncomfortable, and we have to make it a safe space too, right? Right. I can't. Um, when somebody tells me that they're uncomfortable with something or that they don't understand something, I have to, as the leader, recognize where they are on that continuum continuing to work with and, and even differentiate me, myself as, as a leader and my approach to supporting and growing my teachers and my staff in this work and even community, right? Right. Because we all, community is important in that. I think it's really easy for us to just say well, we're going to fix the school piece, but I think the community has to also understand that why piece too, because I think that that could also be um, a barrier to the work. Definitely. And, and you know, and I think in our current times where a lot of people um, in a really great way are really looking at like where they stand and how they react to things um, such as the work of, you know, becoming anti-racist. And, um, and I think that that can sometimes, you know, obviously it, it can be very, very uncomfortable. And I think having the community really be a part of that conversation as well, just continues to help push um, you know, the equity that we need in our, in our schools and, and in our, in our cities, in our country. Right. Right. Absolutely. I think creating equitable outcomes is something that I think we all agree on. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that when we start there as our why, we all want the same thing where we should. Right. right? Like we all came into to education to have better outcomes for all students. And I think if we can center on that, um, and recognizing that there are ways to do this um, that are comfortable and some that are very uncomfortable. But I think that it's just recognizing and centering on that we all want what's best for students. Great. Thank you for that. So the next question, um, and this is a question. So I did an act- another interview with another principal. Um, she is a white principal and has worked really hard to do to build culturally relevant schools. And so I wanted to have that conversation um, with her as well. And one of the big things, she and I worked together, and we found that there was a big gap in how campuses or schools are handling behavior interventions. So what does being culturally responsive mean when it comes to behavior interventions and discipline? And what does that look like? Because we know the data shows that um, that black boys especially are suspended at a much higher rate than any other population in the school. Right. 
I think it takes advocacy. You know, I, I am a, a black principal, right? And I've, I've been doing this for about seven years now. And and you're absolutely correct. Um, um, what we see is boys in general, but especially black boys, and the approach to it is different. And, it, and it's interesting. I was having a conversation with another principal. We were looking at some data. Um, and and it was specific to discipline data, right? And we were mm-hmm. looking at, at, at some of um, an equity audit. And it was showing the different reasons why students get referrals. And um, one was um, aggressive acts. For African-American males, it was aggressive action. Okay. For white males, it was horseplay. Hmm. And so that's something that I felt like was really important to pull out and recognize with my staff, right? Um, when we are writing referrals for behavior, how do we... How do we view and we perceive that behavior, right? Right. Because for this group of students, we are viewing it as an aggressive action. But for this group of students, which may be the exact same behavior, we are we are approaching this as, well, it was just horseplay, mm. right? Right. So even how we view students through that lens, um, and we can say we're colorblind and we don't see race, but our data says that we do, right? right? Um and I can tell you that that's how we approach it on our campus is just pulling up that data and seeing that people see the same thing that we see. And then people do like our staff, they do, they recognize that. And we begin to have a conversation about it because we can't really argue with data. Right. Um, and then we start to have, we start to vary our approaches to it. Um, is restorative practice better? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, because as a campus principal, there's nothing worse than having a student come to the office. And I can tell you, my approach to students is very different because when they come to me, I'm not upset with them, right? Right. With what they did because they didn't do it in my office or in my classroom. They were in the classroom and they're coming to, to me to have a conversation about. So the worst thing I can do is send them back into a classroom where a teacher's not ready to receive them, right? Yes. So one of the things in our approach is using that restorative practice piece and that we have to fix what's broken, right? If you're going to come to me, we're going to talk through what it is. But really, who you need to repair this relationship with is the teacher. And the teacher needs to repair a relationship with you because it's also recognizing that, yes, the behavior may have been wrong, but there's always a, a, a cause, right? Yes. And maybe in some cases, we didn't recognize really what the cause of that behavior was. So one of the things, one of the approaches that we've varied um, in trying to change um, our discipline data and our approach and how teachers see things is really helping the teacher and the student repair that relationship. So... After I have a conversation with the student um, and some time has passed, I go and I relieve a teacher so that that teacher and student can fix what was broken. And sometimes that's facilitated by another administrator or a counselor uh, to facilitate the conversation between the two so that that relationship can be repaired and the student can come back into class and feel safe and comfortable. And the teacher can feel that too, right? right. Because that's important. Um you know, there's nothing, you know, we don't want to send a student back into the classroom and the teacher not be ready to receive them. And the message that that sends to the student is I'm not wanted here. Right. Um, which can lead to, to further behavior. So that restorative piece, I think, is important in how in our traditional approach to how we um, handle this area. Issues of discipline are important, too. And so it's not keeping a student in the office the rest of the day because the teacher's not ready to receive them and then sending them back and never have an opportunity to repair that relationship. That's important. Right. Um, and it really also helps the teacher. What I've noticed is it helps the teacher see the student as a student, right, who is mm-hmm. still learning and adapting and growing because they are. They're, at, you know, they're, they're still developing and, and growing their social skills, and they're still developing and growing um, 
in lots of different ways. And the most important place for them to be is in the classroom. Right. Most definitely. Um, and so we have to work towards that approach. And I love that it's it's restorative for both. It's it's about the teacher right. learning as much as it is about the student learning. And right. and I, I just can see like how valuable that is. I'm thinking back to, you know, my time in the classroom of like, wow, how great it would be to have had that opportunity to sit down with a student um, and, and have that conversation, you know, outside of the classroom um, in a right. safe environment for them um, and right. the learning that comes from both parties for sure. Correct. Absolutely. So I would love to hear from you about what are some of the things that you have done to increase your own knowledge about creating a culturally responsive school? Oh my gosh, lots of lots of professional development um, around it. One of the best um, one of the best um, workshops that I've had the opportunity to attend, and it actually was a, a summit. Our, our district did a summit with a professor from the University of Texas, Dr. Terrence Green, um, and it was really just kind of it varied my approach to the work because I think that going back to what we talked about earlier is people being uncomfortable with the work. Right. And there was one thing that he, there was one message that he said that resonated with me, um, especially being um, a black woman principal and trying to approach the work with my staff who is, who is 80% white mm-hmm. um, female, like in trying to approach that work um, and understanding the importance that it's not just me feeling like it's important and me recognizing that this work is important, but all of us. And there was one statement that he gave to us that has resonated with me and it has guided my approach to this work. And it was, it's not your fault, but it's our responsibility, right? Mm, Yes. We didn't create this education debt um, that some of our students are experiencing. We didn't create the achievement gap, if that's what, you know, we want to call it. We didn't create um, the disparities that exist within the data, but we are here now Mm -hmm. and it's our responsibility to fix it. Um, so lots of lots of training and and, um, and culturally responsiveness and, and how we approach the work. I love the book How to Be an Anti Racist. I love yes. um, culturally. I love anything that I can get my hands on that that gives me a nugget that I can use with my teachers and my staff. Right. Yes. So that it stays fresh and I always have a tool in my toolbox to be able to use when I'm trying to guide them in the work too. And so um, so again, I just I think that just that one statement has varied my approach to the work, and I think it allows people to safely enter the space of doing the work with me, right? That it, yeah. I'm not saying that it's your fault, um, but it's our responsibility together to help close these gaps um, and the disparities that we see, so that we can create equity and outcomes for students. And that's just such a powerful statement. I mean, there's mm-hmm. you can't argue with it. That's for sure. <laughs> Right. For sure. Right. And I know now we're 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 so lucky to have so many different resources like you talked about the book How to Be an Anti-Racist. Um there's just so much information out there now that is um really really helpful for for teachers, leaders, everybody on the street to to pick up and really be able to do this important work. So right. thinking about so we've obviously been in COVID times for 10 months, how has that impacted the culturally responsiveness of the work that y'all do on campus or virtually? Oh, wow. Um, for sure. I think it's even more important. I think our teachers see 
the importance, right? Because now you have a bird's eye view into students' homes that we may not have have necessarily had before, right? And mm. we can see um, the different tools and resources that students have or don't have um, in their ability to fully participate in school. And so I think um, it, it furthers the conversation along, and I think it furthers along our why, right? We have students whose families can hire um a tutor to be at home with their students all day long and learn virtually um, and participate virtually in school. We have some students who the parents trying to balance work right. um, and their student and keep their students safe at home. And then we have some students, some parents who have really no option, but the student, they don't want, maybe not want to send their students back to school in person, but they ha- really have no choice. Um, we look at access of just kind of resources. Do you have a book at your home to read? So it's easy for us to say, you know, I want you to read um, for 20 minutes and I want you to have a response on this. But what if I don't have a book in my home, um, you know, to read? And so I I really think that teachers start to see, I think we know it, but I think you really start to see those disparities um, and how huge those gaps are and just access to resources and equity. And so I think that that equity conversation continues to come up, right? How do we create, how do we, create a balance so that everybody is able to participate and that they get what they need. And so I think our teachers have started to use their resources differently, right? We have hundreds of parent volunteers on our campus um, who just want to, who want to help and they want to be partners in this work. So then we start to use parents differently too, right? Mm. Um, I got to get books to students' homes. So then we start to use our parent volunteers differently. Can you go and deliver these books? Can you be um, the volunteer for my classroom who delivers books to students' classrooms who may not be able to come to the school to get them or receive them. Um, we start to see that, um, we start to really see our students in different ways. Our district even, um, this is pre-COVID, our district last year started to see, um, you know, uh, took a, a real investment in not just the campus library, but our campus literacy libraries. And that's where we pull books to do small group instruction with students and really wanted to diversify that. And what was interesting is we had a, a, a team that was actually going through our literacy library and um, trying to get things organized because we had, you know, $10,000 worth of books coming in. Oh, wow. Actually, probably even more than that. Um, and really seeing, like, some of the books that we had in there, how maybe inappropriate they may have been for families, right? Um, mm. and, just, and for a lot of different reasons. So just really wanting to... You know, and they felt empowered to come and say, you know, I don't really think that these books are appropriate for us to have in the literacy library. And we need more of, of maybe this, or we need to have books that are more representative of our families, whether we be, we, you know, we have uh, our fa- and families look different ways, too. And so our teachers start to recognize all of those things. And it's beautiful. Like, it's a really beautiful, it, as hard as the work is, it's beautiful when things start to click, right? And Definitely. it starts to become more organic. And it's not top down, we have to do this, but it starts to become more organic because your staff starts to see this as a need and that, that it's necessary and that it's important. Um, and, and it improves our overall bottom line. And again, it just goes back to equitable outcomes for students. That's awesome. And yeah, and that investment, I mean, you, you see the value of that investment um, mm-hmm. and, and the impact that it has on students, which is amazing. We just have one more question and then we'll move into our, um, my little seven short answer questions. So the last, the last question I have is I would love to know what advice would you give to leaders? Actually, I think we kind of talked about this who are just creating culturally responsive schools. Um, 
Let me think of another question real quick. Or is there any any other thing that you feel like is important that you share with with our listeners today? I think that just that the work, um, you know, if we want to, in essence, create the kinds of schools that we hope, like in our visions, right? We have these these beautiful vision statements, but I think the thing for, for leaders to recognize is ensuring that when we speak those vision and mission statements, that they include all students. And when we say all, that we truly mean all. Right. And that we truly have that responsibility. And I think that it, it takes courage right now to be a leader um, in, in schools. Um, yes, definitely. For a lot of different reasons, and especially to lead in the context and where we are pre-COVID, during COVID, and after COVID, it's going to take courage um, to continue the work. And so just my advice to leaders is to, is to stay the course. Um, to have courage, um, because we, we're all in this together mm-hmm. and, and our students need it. That's beautiful. As we do with each podcast episode, I'm going to end with our seven short answer questions, um, with an educational twist. So as an educator, what keeps you up at night? I think over, over, excuse me, I'm going to re- no, that's repeat okay. that question. What keeps me up at night is whether or not I've made the best decision for students. As an educator, what allows you to sleep soundly? Knowing that I am putting forth my best every single day. What sound or noise do you love to hear in a school? Student laughter. What sound or noise do you hate to hear in a school? Silence. What is your favorite word in education? Equity. What is your least favorite word in education? Achievement gap. Who was your favorite teacher and why? Oh my gosh. I think I would have to say um, my favorite teacher in school was Miss Hall. She was my fourth grade teacher Okay. at Go Valley Elementary in Austin ISD. And she was my favorite teacher because she one day asked me to get up and read my writing in class. And I was a, it was a, I was a great student in school, I'll say, but it was in that moment that I truly felt like somebody saw me and they were recognizing um, my brilliance and what I brought into their learning environment that they saw enough to have me share my thoughts and the words that I wrote on my paper with my peers. And to me, that is important, that somebody recognizes and sees all of the students in their classroom. Thank you so much for sharing that. And Katrina, I want to thank you so much for just sharing your wealth of knowledge and um, and really being an inspirational leader um, for our podcast listeners. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I, I really appreciate being here today. Awesome. If you like what you hear in this episode, hop on over to whatever platform you use and give us a rating and review. And of course, don't forget to mention this to your colleagues. Thanks. 